the problem with the mayor's plan is there's no back end to it. So it's reactive. So, okay, we're going to drag people off the streets, take people to hospitals, but you're doing, first of all, you're going to do it with an EMS system that is broken. We don't have enough staffing. People are leaving in droves. And you're going to put them in a hospital in New York City that is understaffed as well. As people know, there's not enough nurses, not enough doctors. There's definitely not enough beds for all of them. So the mayor's announcement, really, it should have been a thought out plan where, okay, we're going to invest in these services to get these people all the help they need. They need intensive care. They need social workers. They need outpatient medical psychiatric facilities. They need housing. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. Earlier this month, Mayor Eric Adams announced a plan to hospitalize unhoused New Yorkers with severe mental illness involuntarily. The move comes amid a growing homelessness and mental health crisis. But while many New Yorkers are desperate for the city to address these problems, experts think Adams' approach might do more harm than good. The directive gives city agencies such as the fire, police, and health department the legal authority to move people who refuse help, appear to have mental illness, and are a danger to themselves. From there, individuals will be taken to hospitals for evaluation. But the plan fails to clearly address what will happen after someone is discharged. Earlier this month, activists gathered on the steps of City Hall to protest the mayor's new directive. They argued this is not the way to truly keep New Yorkers safe. They also voiced frustration over the lack of funding for mental health services. My name is Antonine Pierre. Uh, I'm with the Brooklyn Movement Center and we're a member of Communities United for Police Reform. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me why you decided to organize this today? Why it's important to come and speak out? It's so important to come and speak out because New York City has already had these policies that institutionalize people under Mayor Giuliani. We've already seen the harm that happens to families, to individuals, when you lock people up literally because they quote unquote can't take care of themselves. And that the goal of government, the role of government is to provide a safety net so that people can live these happy lives. What were your first reactions when you heard first heard about this idea? Well, it's just, it, you know, I think my reaction to any of uh, Mayor Adams' plans on uh, quote-unquote public safety is that they're just not thought out. They're, the plans are not clear. They're not thought out. This plan in particular claims to be compassionate but has no plan for treatment. And it's basically just going to cycle people in and out of psych wards every 72 hours. The biggest concern is the lack of a comprehensive healthcare plan for New York City. So that we, you know, we're talking about reaching people in crisis, but we're not talking about preventative care or follow-up care. And we know, particularly in the instances of killings of people like Saheed Vassal, that really creating that safety net for folks, making sure that there's, there are no gaps between their crisis treatment and their long-term care, that is actually what saves lives. Councilmember Alexa Aviles, who represents District 38, was also at the rally. Here's what she had to say. So, so we're here today based essentially demanding that the mayor rescind his directive of involuntarily committing uh, people with mental health issues by the police. Uh, we think it's a misguided um, effort, that it is very harmful. Our city has done that in the past and uh, stopped doing it because it resulted in harm and death. Um, and so we think it's a, an awful policy. Um, that doesn't address the essential issue, right? The issue is we need 
to address the mental health crisis that we are in and our city is in, we need a full continuum of care. We need to invest. Every hospital will tell you they don't have psychiatric beds. We've been defunding the mental health system in New York City and New York State for decades. So we need funding to create the beds. We need funding for the workers all along the continuum from the first exposure to when people are in institutions, right, in facilities getting care to, to when they come home, right? So we are asking for real solutions and a comprehensive plan that actually addresses the issue. Disappearing people is not a plan. Like Anthony and Alexa, Anthony Almujera, a lieutenant paramedic with the FDNY Emergency Medical Service, worries that with the mayor's new directive, unhoused people who are struggling with mental illness will not have a pathway to healing and recovery. Anthony is also the vice president of the Uniformed EMS Officers Union, Local 3621, and the author of Writing the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. He's often the first on the scene when someone calls about an emotionally disturbed person. My name is Anthony Almagero. I'm a lieutenant paramedic for the Fire Department of New York Emergency Medical Services. I'm also the vice president of Local 3621, the EMS Officers Union, and I'm the author of Riding the Lightning, a Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. I have been working for EMS for 20 years. I respond to 911 calls. I've worked throughout the city. Currently, I'm based in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. It's basically uh, when you call 911 for a medical emergency, you get me or you get my colleagues that work at EMS, EMCs, and paramedics. We uh, go to all types of different calls, shootings, stabbings, uh, building collapses. We deliver babies, uh, take care of grandma, everything in between. So uh, it's a, it's an intense job. It's very, it's a dangerous job. And it's a it's very busy, busier than it's ever been. And can you tell me a little bit more about I guess, your encounters with homeless New Yorkers? I know that must be a big part of your job as well. Sure. EMS providers are the front line in dealing with the homeless population, especially when they require some type of services. So we get homeless people all day, every day, who, for one reason or another, have fallen through the cracks in the system that we have and wound up in the streets. And then they require either psychiatric care or medical care, sometimes both. These are people who are underserved and don't have access to medications or proper nutrition, housing, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they, they lean heavily on EMS workers to get them care, immediate care, and then to try and get them to a facility that can hopefully take care of them. And from a personal standpoint, I'm even more keenly aware of what they go through because I was homeless for two years myself. It's something that when I've had them as I had people who are homeless as patients, I share that information with them. So they realize that I'm a kindred spirit, so to speak. What were your first thoughts when you heard about the mayor's plan to, you know, forcibly put homeless, mentally ill homeless New Yorkers into treatment? So I'm not opposed to getting people help or to trying to force them somewhat out of the street life into getting care and uh, hopefully a reintegration into society of some sorts. The problem with the mayor's plan that I read is it's there's no back end to it. So it's reactive. So, okay, we're going to drag people off the streets. Drag might, might, might not be the right word, but we're going to forcibly take people to hospitals. But you're doing, first of all, you're going to do it with an EMS system that is broken. We don't have enough staffing. People are leaving in droves for numerous reasons, including 
but not limited to pay and benefits and, and working conditions. And you're going to put them in a hospital in New York City that is understaffed as well. As people know, there's not enough nurses, not enough doctors. There's definitely not enough beds for all of them. And during the last week of August, we averaged about 425 calls for emotionally disturbed persons. And 911, we called them EDPs for short. That's 425 beds throughout the city on average that are needed. The governor stated that she was going to allocate 50 more beds. That's not, that's not going to help. And we're bringing them into a hospital system that I mentioned all those things that aren't working. And then we're going to try and do what with them? They need intensive care. They need social workers. They need outpatient medical psychiatric facilities. They need housing. So the mayor's announcement, while understood, is reactive. Really, it should have been a thought-out plan where, okay, we're going to invest in these services to get these people all the help they need to put the puzzle of their life back together so that they can come full circle back into uh, regular everyday life, living, living a, uh, what I think is uh, a dignified life, having housing and medical care and food, etc. Yeah, I personally don't think like a lot of New Yorkers know the work that it really goes into when you guys respond to these calls. Would you mind telling me like what a typical scene might look like? Is it all different? Like what do you have to do when you get one of these calls? It can be it can be different. It obviously depends on the setting you're in. Sometimes it's public, down in the trains, down in the street corners, in people's homes. They come in all shapes and sizes as far as the call where we're going to go take care of people. The the potential for danger is there. Police are part of this. But the other thing that Mayor Adams announced is that police are going to have a deciding role, which has never been the case. It's always been up to EMS to determine whether a person should go to the hospital or not. So now you set a potential conflict between the two first responders. The second thing is there's inherent danger if somebody who's mentally unstable at the moment and violent. Two months ago, roughly, uh, one of my colleagues was stabbed to death in the street while at work because she, uh, she was uh, walking around the corner to investigate something. And some guy who allegedly suffers from schizophrenia stabbed her over 20 times. Those dangers are faced by EMS workers on a daily basis. Assaults have almost doubled against EMS workers from patients, including psychiatric patients. So it's a, it's a volatile, it can be a volatile situation in every situation we deal with with a patient is unique. And what about when they are transported to the hospitals? What happens then? Because a lot of people might think, oh, they're going to put them into a treatment. They're going to take care of them for like as long as they need. But that might not necessarily be the case. That is very rarely the case. The issue that we're faced with a lot is they turn into regulars for us. They go to the hospital. Maybe they sleep it off for the night or get a psych consult. Very rarely are they admitted into a hospital because the hospitals don't have capacity for it. And then they're shuffled back out into the streets and then we get them again. And that leads to the burnout. You know, as a medical provider, whether you're a paramedic or a nurse or what have you, you hope to have some type of linear care that results in a positive outcome. The issue with, the, um, with this is, you know, if you keep picking up the same people every day, you start to question, what am I doing this for? And these people are being shuffled back out into the street. They're, they're very rarely given long-term care. And especially, even if they're admitted into a hospital, then what? All right, so instead of being out in the street in three days, you're out in the street in 20 days because there's no long-term game plan for them. What is the biggest barrier you think that is preventing them from seeking that long-term care? I don't think it's a barrier of them wanting to seek it. I think the barrier is that it's not available to them. I think, I think if, if they saw a pathway 
if somebody said, hey, okay, we EMS, if the EMS provider, the, the EMT came up and said, hey, we're going to take you to this hospital. And in that hospital, they have the ability to have this nice linear set of care for you to get you medically and psychologically stable, get you treatment, get you medicines, get you with social workers who are going to check in on you and help you put together the, the, the pieces that have fallen apart. If you're undomiciled, get you housing, and then we get you back into the game, so to speak. These The people that are living on the street, I think it's ridiculous to expect them that they can follow up on their own. You know, they're living in the street, and then you discharge them from the hospital in two days and say, here, here's a prescription, go fill it, and here's a clinic, go, go to that clinic, you know, in two weeks when they have availability. That's not going to happen. It's not happening. I mean, the proof is right there. You can walk the streets. It's not happening. The other thing that's crazy is... uh. A lot of the people I've been seeing when I go on these calls are recently homeless, have recently gone through some some issue where it's now gotten to the point where they're out in the streets and, and having these psychiatric episodes. And I think that's a large thing can be attributed to the pandemic. The pandemic exposed all the flaws in our system, medically, social safety net wise, in this country. So I think a lot of feeling the effects of that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Something I didn't ask that you think I should know? Just to bring it back to EMS, you know, there's a, we're going to be the tip of the spear when it comes to this, these programs. Whenever it deals with mental hygiene, EMS workers are incredibly burnt out. Like I mentioned, so many people are leaving. Roughly 75% of the workforce has less than five years experience. That's a lot to put on the shoulders of people who don't have the experience to deal with people who are in crisis. We need to stabilize the EMS workforce for any program, any health pandemic, mental health program to be successful. You need the first responders who are responsible for this, which is EMS to be stabilized. And that can be fixed tomorrow. Before we go, our weekly update on MPV in New York City. Make sure to tune in for the latest information on vaccines, testing, care options, and much more. Hi. I'm Sam Zacker, back with this week's New York City MPOX update. Last week, we went over why the MPOX vaccine is still encouraged despite falling case counts. To learn more, check out last week's episode. Today, a closer look at how the MPOX vaccine is administered. The Genios vaccine is an important tool in preventing the spread of MPOX. As you get ready to head in for your first dose, here's what you can expect. First, you will likely be offered the vaccine in the forearm, between the top layers of your skin. This is called an intradermal vaccination. If you have concerns about the vaccine leaving a mark that others can see on your forearm, you have several options. You can ask to get it in the skin of your upper back or the skin of your shoulder. You can also ask for the vaccine to be given to you subcutaneously. This means that the vaccine will be injected into the fat layer underneath the skin on the back of your upper arm. Next, although early findings suggest that the first dose of the Genius vaccine gives some protection against MPOX, two doses are recommended to provide stronger, more long-lasting protection. You should get two doses no matter which way you receive the vaccine. Dose number two should come 28 days after dose number one. Finally, you can start to have an immune response after the first dose of the Genius vaccine, but it takes two full weeks after the second dose for you to be the most protected. Keep in mind that things are changing quickly, so if you have any specific questions 
or need help making a vaccine appointment, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690. You can also ask the vaccine to be given to you subcutaneously. This means that the vaccine will be injected in the fat layer underneath the skin on the back of your upper arm. Next, although early findings suggest that the first dose of the Genius vaccine gives some protection against MPOX, two doses are recommended to provide stronger, more long-lasting protection. You should get two doses no matter which way you receive the vaccine. Dose number two should come 28 days after dose number one. Finally, you can start to have an immune response after the first dose of the Genius vaccine, but it takes two full weeks after the second dose for you to be the most protected. Keep in mind that things are changing quickly, so if you have any specific questions or need help making a vaccine appointment, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to, in our podcast description.